that if you are a woman and you are a mother and you are a working class mother, there are so few things that you have in terms of time, space, money, emotional support, community that enable you to write. And so she sort of asked this question in this work, you know, how much great literature are we losing because of material inequality? That's Maggie Doherty, a critic and teacher at Harvard University. Maggie writes often for publications such as The Nation, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and N Plus One. Her criticism often focuses on writers and feminists around the middle of the 20th century. So familiar names include Mary McCarthy and Kate Millett. Reading Maggie's literary criticism is, I think, a lot of fun, for one, and also very compelling, because she blends questions of politics into her writing without becoming, say, I don't, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but like vulgarly political. I don't I, I, Maybe that's the wrong phrase. I think, put otherwise, that Maggie manages, at least in my view, to marry the literary with the political in her writing in a careful and very helpful way. It's very illuminating. So in our conversation, I ask Maggie about this. I ask her about recent articles that she's written on Mary McCarthy and Kate Millett, as well as a book she's working on. The book is titled The Equivalence, and it's about a group of five women writers and artists who met at the Radcliffe Institute in the early 1960s. We talk particularly about one such Radcliffe writer, Tilly Olson, and the insights she advanced into the ways writing is really work. That is, it's really labor. We talk about writing as work, and the economic situation that's to say economic contingency and precariousness that many writers, perhaps almost all writers and academics, face today. Our conversation begins where I ask Maggie her, about her recent piece in The Nation, which takes up Mary McCarthy, that great critic of the New York intellectual scene of the 50s and 60s. Maggie points out in her article that McCarthy's main literary and critical trait was her unsparing honesty. She would write scathing reviews, as well as fictionalized takes even on the, li the living legends, excuse me, of her own social circle. Maggie Doherty writes that for McCarthy, quote, the responsibilities of the novelist were the same as those of the intellectual, to observe the world carefully and to discern and communicate the truth, unpopular as it may be. I ask Maggie for some examples of this critical honesty, and I ask what effect it had on the literary scene of McCarthy's time. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Well, she sort of had two aspects, or even we can think a little bit about two phases of her career. So she started off as a critic, primarily, and she continued to write criticism throughout her career. But for the first few years of her writing life, she was mostly writing book reviews, uh, critical essays on the sort of state of literary criticism. And she was very committed in all of that critical work to being very, very accurate hmm. and often very provocative about what she thought of her contemporaries. So there, you know, McCarthy is kind of famous or infamous for some of her takedown lines. But for her, this was often a way of pushing either the conversation forward or sort of raising the standards for what was acceptable. I don't know that she would have been... Um, articulating what she was doing in precisely those terms. But I sort of see a lot of her interest in saying, actually, this is not good. Actually, Eugene O'Neill is not a particularly skilled playwright, even though everyone <laughs> thinks he's so great. Actually, my dear friend James Farrell is kind of also lacking in that department is also, I think, a way of kind of calling for both more honesty in reviewing and in criticism, but also better work from her contemporaries, actually to try to produce work that will kind of stand up to really close scrutiny of its aesthetic, uh, literary, even sort of uh, of its accuracy. That's what she was really interested in. And that that's what she tried to do in her own fiction. She was interested in the accurate representation of the social world, how people related to each other, and also the physical world. And that was something that actually really struck me reading her fiction uh, in all, all of her fiction all at once, um, a lot of it for the first time, was how worldliness and the kind of uh, sensibility to the physical world, to the material world, to what you, what you can see and touch, for her was really a, a sort of moral good 
to be that to be that attentive. So in her fiction, she writes a lot about intellectuals, a lot about uh, self-styled leftists, uh, senators in some of her later work, people who have political commitments, but in their political commitments are often inattentive or intellectuals who only think in the abstract. And she's known for being satirizing of these types. And I think the way her, her critique or even her, her satire works is often showing the gap between their ideas, their ideologies, uh, their aspirations, and the kind of world in which they live and the actions that they, they, they actually sort of commit in that world. Um, so it's a little bit, a little bit sort of uh, the gap between uh, appearance and reality, or if, or if not quite that, uh, because she's very invested in, in, in appearance itself. She, she, the, she's almost like, there's almost a kind of interest in hypocrisy, I think in her, in her fiction. Um, so that for her was a, was her sort of main commitment, I think, in all of her work across her career and sort of no matter what genre she was working in. Well, I mean, one thing you point out that's, that's very interesting, and I think you might cite a scholar as having made something like this argument is that that kind of critical style or posture became um, popular or the virtue of it was seen by other critics like Susan Sontag, who also mm-hmm. picked it up. I think the phrase you use is an, aest- an aesthetic of toughness. Mm-hmm. Yes, this this is coming from uh, Deborah Nelson, who is a English professor at Chicago, has just written a book about some of these female intellectuals, McCarthy, Arendt, Sontag. I think um, there are, I think a few more a few more in that book, and she thinks that they all share this kind of tough unsentimental, in fact, anti-sentimental mm. way of thinking and talking about politics in the world, and in particular about pain and suffering. That uh, the, the argument, as I understand it, of that book is that empathy is very dangerous mm. in a political context. And so these writers and thinkers are sort of arguing for rather than an, a kind of empathetic engagement with atrocity and with suffering, uh, a sort of cold and detached assessment of the problems that lead to atrocity and suffering. I see. Um, Yeah. What do you think, uh, do you think that, um, that, that commitment to reality, as you call it, and also that, that accompanying aversion to warm, ambiguous, imprecise feelings, um, as you say, uh, do you think that that's always or unequivocally a virtue of McCarthy's writing? I'm just thinking, I think you Mm. you have also have a line where you say something like, um, McCarthy's novels tend to read more as sociology than as art. So surely there's a there's a political <laughs> virtue. Yeah, there's a political virtue in identifying hypocrisy, um, which you say that she does. Right. But but w- was there was there um, a vice or a limitation in that aesthetic? I, I think I think there is. And I think in in especially in some of her later work where her real interest, uh, I think I'm thinking of her her last novel, Cannibals and Missionaries, seems to be uh, giving us a bunch of different types of people and sort of showing exactly what that, and this is even true in, in the group, her best-selling novel about Vassar graduates. She's really interested in, okay, what does this type of person wear? Where would they live in New York city? How would they make dinner? Would they buy canned beans or would they make the beans from scratch? Hmm. Of course, she also favors making the beans from scratch. Buying canned beans is usually a sign that you're not the heroine of a McCarthy novel. <laughs> um, she was a very, she's very, you know, very, very good cook and had a lot of uh, sort of opinions about the right way to do those things. Um, and that's, I mean, there's something really amazing in terms of the documentary quality of her work. Like, if you want to know what 1930s uh, upper middle class New York was like, you can read the group and get a really, a pretty comprehensive picture of that. Um, I think as far as what are the virtues of the novel as, you know, novel qua novel, what are the things that make a novel sort of rich and compelling, Mm. uh, for, for many, for me, sort of psychological richness is a, is a component of that, is a component of what the novel does. The novel both gives you a world and gives you the individual in a world and gives you a sort of, uh, believable and psychologically rounded individual, a kind of consciousness or subjectivity. And while she was always very, very, I mean, she, she used free and direct discourse a lot and close third person and would sort of give you the minds of her characters 
in a way, those minds also seemed related to the social type that she was trying to communicate. Right. So what would this kind of woman think about this kind of event? Um, again, as a historical artifact, really interesting, but as a kind of engrossing novelistic ex- experience, I, I don't always I don't always think her fiction produces that. That's so interesting. I think another point or a related point, and I'm, un, I'm wondering if you could talk about the relationship between these two things. Another point that you make about that very um, quality of McCarthy's prose. It's interesting. You, uh, you, you say that verisimilitude is her, um, um, is her main aesthetic aim, but you're, it seems like you're also saying that a certain psychological verisimilitude is actually lacking in her that she just doesn't just doesn't illustrate like the wholeness or the richness of a person's um well personhood humanity and i'm you you also point out that this has this this bears some implications for her understanding of politics and for the possibilities of a political vision in her work you write that um for better or for worse politics like fiction trades upon our capacities to feel solidarity anger and pride and McCarthy's novels, as well as her politics, might have benefited from more engagement with these powerful emotions. So could, mm. you talk, could you talk a bit about this? In what manner do you think McCarthy's writing could have improved, in a political sense, say, if she were to have considered these emotions more seriously? Well, I th- so I have sort of two things to say um, on this point. So the first is I just to kind of be be as fair to Mary McCarthy as possible. I think there there are moments in her fiction where the psychology of her characters is really fascinating. Mm. And I think in her short fiction, often um, I'm thinking of uh, her early stories in the company she keeps, and even in some of her later stories, there she did she did take a, an interest in kind of rendering uh, a character subjectivity in a really interesting and in even sort of emotionally compelling way. So I think it was just, uh, I I think in a way what I'm saying is I, uh, I think it was for her a deliberate choice Mm -hmm. um, to be more interested in the sociological than the psychological at various moments in her fictional career that she, that she, she found, she found rendering a social world very interesting. Um, And that's sort of what her fiction tended to in, in the novelistic uh, genre often. Um, But in terms of her sort of the way politics and feeling intersect, um, I think what's interesting to me about McCarthy's politics, and I think this is true of some of the other intellectuals we were mentioning and and to to some degree about the New York intellectual milieu generally, is a wariness of groupthink, which also could sometimes be a wariness of solidarity. Um, So I think that, that my understanding of McCarthy skepticism about certain kinds of reflexive articulation of political ideas or ideological commitment or talking points is that she thought it was sort of thoughtless and that the Uh best way to get to a political position was again, to sort of be observant and reasonable and accurate and thoughtful. Um, I guess my understanding of, of, of especially sort of political movement making is that reason alone is often not enough to build movements, to build sort of political energy and commitment. And that emotion is often necessary to activate and also to sort of bind people to each other in moments of uh, political action. And so I sort of, I, when, I, when I read about the political groups in her novels, I kind of wonder about that. I guess, that, I mean, in some ways, it's right. very like projected, projecting my own political experience into her novels, because I think uh, any experience of political organizing often kind of trades on the emotions you're able to activate with, uh, in those that you're, that you're organizing with, or the emotions that are, that arise in you during a kind of movement making or, um, or, or in moments of political action. And I sort of want, as I read, uh, about political groups in her work, I kind of wonder about that. Mm-hmm. Like, are these people bound together through shared anger or, shared love for each other or trust in each other. That just seems uh, something that's a kind of crucial component of political activism and agitation. Uh, so well, I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, you that, that, that reminds me, you do point out um, in your, your article in The Nation that, that McCarthy was obviously for a lot of the positions of women's lib, for instance, but never 
claimed um, a kind of solidarity with women's lib as a movement. And I guess I'm wondering, yes. yeah, and, and I guess that's, that's so interesting. Do you, do you think that in her work, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question, but do you mm. think that in her work, you can identify the, is the root cause of her um, distrust of that, um, of, of women's, of, of, of women's lib or identifying with it as a move, a movement? Is it, is it her distrust of those powerful emotions or her distrust of the alternative, the, the hypocrisies, the political hypocrisies that she saw in other people, which is that they would they would be leftist in name only or something? I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 more the latter. I think that I mean, she she I think she once called Simone de Beauvoir a bourgeois mind or something oh, like yeah. that. Um, she I think I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, she was obviously committed to some of the principles of women's liberation. But again, I think she believed in coming to those principles through close observation and careful thought and not because you were swept up in a move in a in a moment right. or in a movement. Right. Um, and so so because I think in when one is swept up, one is carried away and one is not always sort of carefully saying now hold on how does this accord with every every other principle <laughs> that I hold or how does this it does, does living in this way preclude thinking this way and be, because there's a kind of momentum quite often to these these sort of uh, political eruptions and so I think as as someone again sort of committed to um careful articulation of the most accurate view that was something that McCarthy wanted to keep her distance from. You say that uh, this this interest in the ways in which writers have um, dealt with the powerful emotions of movement making is is something that you're, you know, is, is an interest that you carry with you into um, any occasion of criticism. I'm, I'm thinking now about uh, your review in The New Republic of of some of the work of Kate Millett, or rather your consideration of her as a as a writer. So she wrote the book, Sexual Politics. You applaud her manner, in, in your review, you applaud her manner of examining literature, quote, alongside political history and in terms of its political content. What interests you about Millett's particular mixture of the literary, the cultural, and the political? So I think that Whenever I approach, I, mean, I think so. I think you're, you're you're right to say that I am interested in how writers and thinkers sort of engage with political movements and movement making. But I do think I I approach those questions very much as a historian mm. and to sort of say, okay, what was happening historically that gave rise to this kind of thought? What influenced it, and also sort of what effect did it have both on its contemporary moment and on moments that came after it? Um, and so I think sexual politics for me is one of those sort of hinge moments or one of those moments in literary history, intellectual history, when something changes. And that's that those those hinges are what I think I'm primarily interested in as a writer or a critic mm. um, as, or really as a as the, as a historian insofar as I am a historian. Um, what what is the event or person that's at once sort of contingent and overdetermined that changes the way people think about something. And so Sexual Politics is this book that changes the way people think and write and talk about gender in literature, um, both sort of literature that was contemporary to Millet's moment and canonical literature. Um, and I think I came, I became interested in her work, both because I'm I'm a sort of historian of American feminism and interested in particular in radical feminism, and she was a very committed and involved radical feminist in New York City, um, and also because I really see the residue or the influence of her thinking in that book in the way we talk about literature and gender now. Mm. So when people get worked up about misogyny in Philip Roth, or when people make fun of Jonathan Franzen, um, that seems to me to have, if not originated in the kind of work that Millet was doing in that book, at least been kind of galvanized and become very much part of the con cultural conversation because of that work and because of how sort of both incendiary and popular it was. So uh, then if uh, I, I'm just now I'm now I'm going through the many articles you've written about other writers and critics, particularly not not necessarily of Millet's moments. Um, particularly those actually before her. Um, you're working on a book right now about um, 
about Radcliffe, and, I'm, and, mm-hmm. and you've written you've written uh, an essay um, available at the New Yorker on Tilly Olson, who well, I'll ask you about her in a moment. Sure. But, but she but she had a writing fellowship, I think, in 1962 at Radcliffe that allowed her to do the writing that she had so desired to do, but for a variety of reasons, primarily to do with um, with her class and the fact that she didn't have independent means and didn't didn't have fellowships before that she couldn't write. Um, mm-hmm. what, what interests you about, um, about Radcliffe and, and what's your book about? Um, so, so in addition to being interested in hinge moments, I'm often quite interested in sort of, uh, coteries or, um, institutions that also exist at these sort of like hinge points in history. So the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Study which has gone through many different names over the years. I think it's now the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Um, was started in 1960, basically as almost like an artist colony or, or a society of fellows for mothers. So the uh, president of Radcliffe, Mary Ingraham Bunting, uh, had this idea that most women wanted to both have a family and have some kind of intellectual career. Obviously, her thinking is very much like circumscribed to the professional class when she's right. thinking about this problem. She was the dean of uh, Douglas College at Rutgers, and so was thinking a lot about women's higher education in terms of uh, elite women's higher education. Um, but so she thought, okay, so most women, this is the tail end of the 1950s, most women are going to get married. They're going to stop working or kind of keep a foot in the door, but really be committed to raising children. And then their children are going to be older and no longer in need of them. And these women are going to be all of, you know, 32 or 33 with decades and decades ahead of them. And they're going to want to get back to the kind of intellectual work they were doing before. Mm. So she starts the Radcliffe Institute basically as this kind of on-ramp to get women with PhDs or artists who had what she, what the application called the equivalent in uh, artistic achievement to get them kind of resources and time and space and some amount of community so they could jumpstart or restart the careers that they had before they'd gotten married and had kids. So my book is about the first few years of this institute during which a group of writers and artists came together and became close friends. And some of them, Tilly Olson being one of them, and Sexton being another who who became very influential in terms of how people thought about women and art and literature and what women could write about, what they should write about. Can you write about being a mother? Is that a kind of viable artistic project? Can you make art uh, of your children or of yourself mothering your children? Does that is that going to conform to a certain idea we have uh, about motherhood and about women, or can it be kind of critical and ambivalent and complicated? And uh, can you can you can you use that to advocate for changes in the culture at large, or in institutional life, or in political life? And so this group comes together, and they're all kind of talking about these things and thinking about these things in their own work, and they kind of come together right at the moment that. Friedan writes a feminine mystique that every, all these other things in the culture kind of combine to bring what we ended up calling uh, second wave feminism into uh, the sort of uh, in, in, into being. So, so the book is about that uh, small community of writers and that institution, also as a way of talking about this kind of shift in uh, the culture at large. So, so you do bring together your primary interest as a critic, then, because you talk both about a hinge moment. And also about a, a coterie of, of intellectuals. I, I have, uh, um, I'm looking right now actually at your New Yorker essay on Tilly Olson, um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm wondering, you know, she she writes as as you say about um, the, the the difficulties essentially of being a working class writer, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a writer who's bringing up children and having to work and trying to find some amount of time to get mm-hmm. to get writing done and to get work done. Uh, could you talk about her? What d- did she affect in your view a shift um in the ways writers could think about themselves as workers um mm-hmm. and as 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 people who contribute contribute to say the proletarian struggle? Yeah, I mean so so Tilly Olson was really my way into this book project. She's the person that I came across first and was so first just compelled by her fi- fiction. So she wrote a collection of sh- short stories 
um, at the tail end of the 1950s. I was published in 1960 and they're, and they're excellent. And she wrote four of them, um, sort of in between raising kids and working as a, a, at a hospital and doing all these other sorts of things that one does when one is a, a woman and also someone who needs to make a living. Um, and, and it was, and it was great. And I sort of, uh, wanted to learn more about her. So her story is really interesting in terms of writing and work. So she starts out as a writer in the 1930s, uh, covering, um, both sort of organizing for, for the, uh, young communists in both the Midwest and in California, and also as a reporter writing about, um, some of the strikes and union activity and organizing that's going on at the time. And even in that early writing, she is really interested in how writing is also a kind of work. So what is what does it mean to be a writer who is talking and writing about the kind of labor that other working class people are doing? Then she takes a long break from writing. I mean, she's always sort of constantly scribbling notes and things, but she's raising four children. She's organizing um, the sort of Mac the McCarthyism of the post-war moment kind of really puts a freeze on some of her writing and thinking and activism, um, as it did for so many uh, people on the left at, at that historical moment. And then she gets back into it um, through a creative writing class when she's in her 40s and actually doesn't get to the Radcliffe Institute until she's in her 50s. And the work that she produces at Radcliffe is actually not what she set out to do. So she really wanted to write the great proletarian novel. Mm. She really, you know, she was, she was interested in kind of the you know, and this is in the 1960s, she's still kind of thinking the way people were thinking in the 1930s, especially writers on the left, that the the most sort of political, politically useful thing a writer could do would be to kind of document the lives of the people. Mm. Um, you know, this was this was socialist realism. This is Walker Evans. This is the kind of like, we're, we're going to we're going to give a real portrait of what it means to be a working class person in Almost this country. Almost like if Mary McCarthy were to write about the proletariat, sort of like documentary. <laughs> yes, but quality. with like a lot of sympathy. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like not not with a cold eye, exactly. Okay. You okay. know, right? Like so 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 Tilly was really really loved the work of Rebecca Harding Davis, um, and that's one one thing she recovered. She recovered Davis's work when she was at at Radcliffe, and what she loved about. Um, Davis's book from the uh, second half of the 19th century, Life in the Iron Mills, that she thought it was this really humane portrait of industrial life. And in her her introduction to the republished edition of it, she she's she's in awe of the way Davis makes the human struggle to be a working class person in the 1860s, 1870s, just so emotionally compelling. So that's actually, I think, a way that that Olson and McCarthy are kind of different because mm. Olson really believed in in compassion. Like that was one of her as a kind of communist humanist, one of her real, um, you know, she, she believed in compassion for all people. She believed in equality among all people. And she believed that one thing writers could do in addition to kind of the documentary was to show the full humanity of all, of all people, of all subjects. Mm. So that's what she set out to do for herself. And she had these ambitions and the, you know, she has these plans for the novel that are kind of insane and <laughs> over ambitious. And instead what she ends up writing, and this is kind of what made her famous and I think really influential is she basically comes up with this kind of almost set of notes and quotations and aphorisms that she ends up presenting at the Radcliffe Institute, everyone had everyone who was part of the Institute had to give a little seminar presentation. It's kind of like, you know, any kind of graduate student working group where you have to like present your work in progress. Um, and she has no work in progress because she hasn't written the novel and she's kind of scrambling and she collects all of this research that she's been doing about writers who either couldn't write or especially women who felt that they were often choosing between writing and their other domestic responsibilities. And she presents this talk, which she called Death of the Creative Process and was later published in Harper's uh, under the title Silences, which then when she published a book version of this, that was the title. Um, and it became a kind of theory of literary production, a kind of theory or a theory really of like literary equality, like what are the resources that you need to be a writer, that not everyone can be a writer because there are material conditions that are necessary for writing that are really unequally distributed. Mm -hmm. That if you are a woman and you are a mother 
and you are a working class mother, there are so few things that you have in terms of time, space, money, emotional support, community that enable you to write. And so she sort of asked this question in this work, you know, how much great literature are we losing because of um, in a material inequality and not even just material inequality or not just, but as it relates to racial inequality, gender inequality, what are the things that people of different identities have or don't have that allow them to make art? Um, and this kind of changes, again, sort of like with sexual politics, changes the way people start thinking about what counts as literature, how should we read literature, what kind of literature should we be reading? Um, so she ends up having this really amazing and influential career. Uh, she becomes a teacher. Uh, she teaches at Amherst. She teaches at MIT. But the great proletarian novel never gets written. So it's a kind of uh, surprise or a surprising or sort of different version of a... Um, a hinge or even a kind of like success story than I think maybe she had in mind. What, um, for what reason did the book not get written? Do you think, or does she write? It's <laughs> actually a great question. One that, um, you know, everyone I think kind of has different accounts are, and I think there are often different answers. One thing that I, that she says, and she says this in the version of the talk she gives at Radcliffe. And I don't know, I would have to, see where else she sort of articulates this problem. So she's talking about, in this talk, she's saying, there's a similarity between being a mother and being a writer, which is that both can sometimes require your immediate attention. And she, she says, you know, children need you now. They need your attention right at that moment. And she says, actually, sometimes your material needs you now. And it it's going to go away. So if you don't sit down at the moment where uh, that sentence is running through your head and get it down, it might go. You might just not be able to get it back. And I think she felt a little bit like that's what had happened to her, that she had had ideas, had had stories, and had, you know, she used to scribble things down on pieces of paper and tuck them into her pockets. And at the end of the day, you know, she'd come home and she'd be in these blue slacks and she'd undo her pockets. And there were all these like scraps of ideas and fragments of conversation and things she'd heard on the bus and try to kind of get them down. But it was almost like this race against time. Like, can I get these ideas down and out while I still have them? And so she gets this second chance at a literary career when she's 50. She's 20 odd years older than most of the women who are at the Institute. And I think she was, and she sort of says this in her, in some of her journals and writings, it was just really hard to get the stuff back, to get the things that she'd lived through in her childhood, uh, in, as a child of immigrants in Nebraska, as a young organizer in California, she wanted to write about that stuff, but it was really hard to get it back from her memory and to remember, uh, the sort of excitement and energy she had when she first came up with it. So I think there's a lot there's a lot of reasons that, you know, books get written or don't get written. But that that really. Yeah, that that point she made about immediacy and about the kind of fleetingness of literary inspiration um, was something I hadn't really thought of before. And I found very compelling. You, you mentioned in your article on, on Kate Millett that a number of critics have written sort of um, valiant efforts at. Um, resurrecting Millet's book, Sexual Politics, mm -hmm. because, it, because it's um, been taken by the critics as obsolescent, or they think that um, people mm -hmm. aren't reading, uh, not enough people are reading Millet, et cetera, et cetera. Is the same true for Olson, her theoretical work on the difficulties of being um, a mother, say, and a writer? How, how mm. often do you suppose that's read today? Do you think, if it is obsolete, do you think it will see a resurgence based on the perhaps the renewed interest in what you were talking about before today, which is, I think, a renewed interest not just on your part, but on a lot of people's parts of thinking very seriously about political mm -hmm. movements. Yeah, thinking very seriously about political movements and also, I mean, a lot of really serious literary inquiry into motherhood. I mean, mm. there's been in the last uh, several years a ton of really sort of thoughtful and sometimes even like esoteric and highly literary, um, you know, you could some to some of some of this literature, you can even call, even call highbrow um, investigations into uh, the condition of motherhood, the intellectual aspects of motherhood. I'm, you know, thinking of like Maggie Nelson and right. Elena Ferrante and Rivka Galchin. And, um, and so I think there, there, this is 
you know, a kind of live literary conversation. I think Olson's work um, definitely sort of fits into that or was one of the historical antecedents for that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, about being very influential as, as a thinker, as a critic, is that when your ideas really do take hold, they take hold in such a way that they become a little bit just the water we swim in. Like we're kind of used to now thinking about canonicity and race and class and gender and saying, oh, who's not getting represented? Why? Oh, that that book became canonical. But of course it did because it was produced by someone who had all these kinds of privileges. And so I think sometimes when when your ideas have been very successful and they're very familiar, people don't feel like they have to go to the source or they don't even know that there is a source because they're so common and pervasive. Um, so it's a, <laughs> it's a sort of interesting, uh, uh, maybe not maybe not negative aspect of of being really influential, but it means that your ideas are already out there. So I think a lot of a lot of us are reading and thinking and teaching under the sign of Tilly Olson without actually knowing that we're doing it. Um, so I do, I, but I do think for that reason and for the reason you mentioned in terms, terms of writing in politics or in terms of the politics of the literary politics of motherhood, et cetera, I think her work is really, um, taps in really easily into a lot of the conversations we're having. Um, and yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope to, <laughs> I hope that more people will be reading and talking and thinking about her, um, in the next, in the next few years. Um, uh, so, um, I'm glad we're we're talking right now about Tilly Olson because I mean, uh, both with respect to her interest in the work of the writer and what it means to work as a writer, and also um, her interest in uh, what it means to try to write when you're living in economic precarity. I'm I'm hoping we can talk about um, the present, say, economic state of the academy mm -hmm. right now and, and the critic mm -hmm. right now. Um, first, I'd like just to ask about you. So um, sure. you teach at, at Harvard currently in a program for advanced undergraduates. Um, do, do you, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering if you'll, um, you'll accept this distinction and I'm, I'm advancing it, um, but sort of uh, um, facetiously. Uh, do you, do, <laughs> do you, I'm right. advancing it merely to, 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 get a, to get a rise out of you, I suppose. Okay. Do, do you consider yourself an academic as opposed to a critic or a critic as opposed to an academic? I, yeah, I mean, I, I understand why this binary is a binary that is to be collapsed. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I, 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 I consider myself, I would say a teacher and a writer. Um, and I think one of the interesting, among the many problems with the academy at the moment, is that um, teaching can sort of, it is no longer a thing that is, um, uh, you, you can be a teacher at a university and you cannot be an academic. Right. Um, and I would say I sort of put myself, like, I am not uh, on a tenure track. I am technically contingent faculty. I have, I'm, I'm very lucky in terms of my uh, contingent employment has multi-year contracts and it has health insurance and it has a living wage. And so in that sense, I am better than, I'm better off than so, so many adjunct faculty, um, who now make up 75% of college instructors. Um, so that's, that's, I, I think a, a category that kind of exists in the life of the university is like teachers, people who are doing the work of teaching who actually will not will not be on the job market or will be on the job market and probably not get jobs um, because of all the reasons that, that we know, um, but are actually very much part of university life. Um, so yeah, so I, so I teach. I, I have been teaching full-time for a few years. I'm teaching part-time at the moment to write this book and then next year have applied for a new job and uh, hopefully we'll go back to teaching full-time and writing as I can. Um, I do think sort of, you know, you pose this, this option between being a critic and being a, an academic. I mean, I think that has, oh, there have always been people who have sort of done both, um, or who, and there have been moments when academic work and criticism was more closely aligned. You know, I'm thinking of like the days of Irving Howe or Lionel Trilling, you know, these people who are, who are teaching and who are, you know, formally professors, but whose scholarship is actually finding homes and readers outside of the academy. And I think we, we are maybe again in a moment when a lot of that kind of work is happening. Um, I think what's interesting is that 
and this is, you know, purely my impression, it seems to be happening a little bit more with younger scholars, like people of my generation or our generation who are trying to cobble together to cobble together some kind of living and also cobble together some sort of way of doing the writing and thinking that they find interesting. And sometimes that means spending a few years in the academy. And sometimes it means having one foot in the academy and one foot in journalism or media. Um, and I see a lot of people my age kind of doing this and maybe fewer in the generation of academics and scholars that are sort of just above me. And like all things, I think this is materially conditioned or this is a result of economic, uh, forces. Mostly. Well, that's, I, that's what I was going to ask because I mean, there's a way of, of thinking about the current situation as if it's desirable on the part of a lot of young thinkers. Like they would just prefer intellectually to be in this sort of, um, this sort of liminal space or the space in between the academy and the world, say, of cultural criticism. Um, um, but then, of course, I, 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 my guess is that, and maybe I'm wrong, my guess is that a lot of those, um, those thinkers and writers would have, and teachers, would have preferred to get a tenure-track job if they could have. And in fact, that, that, that would have been in their head when they started to do a PhD um, mm -hmm. when, when, you, so you just recently got your PhD at Harvard, um, in 2015, uh, and a chapter of your dissertation, um, on the National Endowment for the Arts was published in American Literary History in 2014. So mm -hmm. I, I'm just wondering, did, throughout your, your work on your doctorate, did you at any point want to try to work on the tenure track? I think that being in a PhD program in order to sort of survive. And I mean that in terms of surviving both financially and um, sort of mentally and emotionally and spiritually, you need to sort of want and believe in the possibility of a tenure track position. Right. Um, I think that is a very kind of uh, pervasive, um, I almost want to call it an ideology, but it's also, it's a, it's a, I think it's a thing. It is a kind of condition of being in a graduate program that you are sort of told again and again that A, the work you are doing, first of all, is not in fact work, it's training for a job that will like probably be there. Um, it, that, that to sort of, you know, kind of have eye on the prize, like all of this, everything you're going through is going to eventually work out. And the idea that there are other options that are either appealing or necessary is often sort of, uh, uh, negated for you. I mean, I guess what I, this is a sort that's a sort of abstract, uh, and euphemistic way of saying that quite often, you know, being in, in a grad in a doctoral program or in the academy generally involves this kind of belief that life outside the academy is bad, mm. is somehow intellectually unfulfilling <laughs> is you're never going to find any work. Um, you're going to have wasted all of this time and, you're going to try to get a job in another industry and you won't be able to, or they'll sort of look at you, you'll be overqualified. And I, I, I think some of that is just self-justification for academic academics. We're always trying to sort of justify their, their projects to themselves and to the world. And also a way of keeping vulnerable academics, be they graduate students or adjuncts, um, vulnerable and, and asking them to sort of accept terms of employment that are not so great. Right. Um, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, there's been so much uh, unionization organizing um, in the academy in the last few years is I think people are sort of a uh, really accepting the fact that for so many people in the academy, there will be no tenure track job. And so the work they are doing is actually just kind of short term contract work that should be um, they should have bargaining power. They should be protected. They should be paid on time, et cetera. Um, but uh yeah. So, 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 right. So, right. So when you asked like for, for me, did I think that I was going to be an academic? There were, there was a stretch of years there where I thought, yes, like this is, this is what I am trying to do. And I tried to do it in various ways. And I don't think I ever really had a moment where I said to hell with it. I'm getting out of this industry. Okay. Although I think for a long, for a long, I think when I, when I actually started organizing other grad students that definitely fed my sort of frustration and skepticism about the whole project. I mean, you, you said a moment ago that there are plenty of, of people, you know, in a way this looks like an ideal, uh, ideal gig to sort of be writing 
super interesting things and also sort of having one foot in the university, but there are plenty of people who would like to just be professors. I would also say that I think there are probably plenty of people who would like to be full-time journalists and staff Mm -hmm. writers for magazines and like journalism and media also is very precarious and very contingent these days. Everyone's a a freelancer is doing sort of contract work and, you know, there are full scale media industries that are like up and dying every day. And so sometimes those people also seek refuge in the academy. And so kind of uh, just the the entire uh, literary intellectual environment right now is precarious kind of everywhere you turn and is contingent everywhere you turn. And so this kind of um, composite literary intellectual career, I think, is in part a product of like all of those industries becoming very difficult and all of those industries sort of seeming uh, unstable in some way. So I'm, I, I guess I'm wondering. I think I think that's absolutely right, and I think um, I th- I think you've you in in the set of um, the set perhaps of quasi delusions that you describe. I think you 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 rightly call that an ideology, and it's it's you know it's interesting that you say that you sort of perhaps slowly or gradually came to shake it off rather than in a sort of aha moment. I mean, I can think of a lot of people I know, and I would say even in my mm-hmm. own situation, it's. Actually, the 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 um the moments where you realize that that is a fact and realize at the same time the need to escape from it is almost a religious moment in that mm. um, you for so long have believed that um, in order to do what I mean in a sort of tweety way you could call it in order to live a life of the mind mm. um, you have to uh, you have to jump through the institutional hoops and train yourself in a manner to become an academic. And once you realize that um, that won't provide, it surely won't provide you any kind of economic or intellectual salvation is, is a moment that I think for a lot of people is, is surely devastating. I mean, mm-hmm. I, the, I, so, so then, as you suggest, perhaps one of the only alternatives is um, to um, try to yoke together a variety of jobs that will allow you to exist in this sort of composite or as a composite of being a teacher and a writer, I, I you know, I, I guess I'm wondering. In and your... also to organize your workplace. That's the other sort of okay, <laughs> thing yes. that I, that, that, yes, like in addition, in addition to figuring out one's own sort of individual path through this mess, I think there, it's, it is obviously sort of crucial for all of us who are occupying sort of similarly uh, contingent or precarious positions to kind of work to make those posi- positions less contingent and less precarious. Right. Okay. Sorry. So, Con- to continue with your, with your line of thought here. Well, no, I, I, have, I, I do have a question about that, but I, I guess I will just, uh, to, to get back to the question of your own criticism in writing, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that economic situation, um, that composite situation is, is a difficult one. I, I, I am wondering if it, if you think that it affects and influences perhaps in a good way, um, the positions you're able to take or the insights you're able to achieve mm-hmm. as a critic. Um, do you think that, that, that as a writer, um, as a cultural critic, um, you would have the habits of mind that you have, or the, you would make the critical moves that you make if you didn't have this foot in the Academy. And if, if you weren't so close um, mm-hmm. to, but not dependent on scholarship. Yeah. I mean, I think that is one reason to go to graduate school. If you, if that makes sense for you in your life and with your responsibilities, I mean, I say like one, one, one reason I think this kind of life is possible for me is that I don't have any, uh, dependence right now. Like I, I can sort of be living a life that's a little bit uncertain and not totally sure where I'm going to be, uh, employed or who I'm going to be writing for, what that's, what that's going to be about. So then, you know, I don't have a sick parent to deal with. Like there's a lot that makes this possible for me in a way that is not possible for any person who wants to think and write. Um, that said, I mean, in terms of the actual, the, the work that I do, um, I, I was, you know, trained as a scholar. And so that means that like research is something that is, uh, familiar to me. And, you know, I, I did work in archives. I worked, I, I mean, I think I, I was, I was very lucky here to work with, um, Luke Menand, who is a, uh, intellectual historian and literary historian who also writes for public audience. And so I really did sort of learn a lot from him about how to, uh, both do really rigorous 
uh, scholarly work, but also present that in a form that is accessible and lively and interesting. I remember like one, one sort of early meeting we had and I was like, wait, so you just tell a story. And he was like, yes, tell a story. And I was like, this is, I've never heard anyone (laughs) say this before. I had no idea that this is what we were supposed to be doing. Um, and so, yeah, I think having both that training in terms of process and also, you know, whatever kind of knowledge I picked up from however many years I've been in the academy does, does make me like taking on these kind of historical and biographical projects. Like they feel, they feel really, uh, uh, available to me in a way that I don't know if I hadn't, um, gone to graduate school and had that training and knowledge, whether I would be dying to take on, um, some of the sort of more historically oriented assignments that I've taken on. Um, but I think I would have developed other skills. Like I think, I mean, I think academia is an industry and it is a profession in the same way that journalism is an industry and is a profession and that there are conventions and norms associated with both of them and that you learn through experience. Um, I think anyone who's transitions from one form of writing to the other learns, oh, there's actually a whole different structure. There are different kinds of arguments. There's different ways of giving and receiving feedback that are particular to this industry. Um, and so switching from one to the other often inver- involves learning and unlearning mm-hmm. uh, the codes and conventions of the first. Um, so I imagine that if I had somehow gone into journalism and magazines right away, you know, I would be I would have different skills and different knowledge and I would be sort of primed for different kinds of assignments. Um, and then if I had gone to graduate school, you know, 10 years after that, I would have had a whole different um, reorientation than, than the one that I had. Maggie, I've taken up um, about an hour of your time, and I actually oh think that's, that's a no, really good... No, this has good... been great. <laughs> yeah. Well, so thank, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been really nice. That was Maggie Doherty. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howinsightcenter.org and follow Howinsight GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground.